I'm going to ask you to open up to the uh, book of Revelation, chapter 2, this morning. We're going to take a look at that in just a little bit. I want to remind you before we get into it that our, um, our goal is to kind of take a snapshot look at the book of Revelation. We're going to look at the big ideas and focus on the practical application of this book. I have no interest in debating the debatable. And that means we're not going to take a look at all the issues and all the questions and all the stuff that uh, is often argued or or considered as people go through this. I want us to look at the big ideas, the, the practical application, the so what's. And my goal is real simple and real clear as we go through this. I want us to walk away each week being transformed, not just informed. And again, like I said the first week, I don't have any problem with those who take two or three years to go through this book verse by verse. But I want us to walk away each week having something about this uh, book, this book of Revelation, that changes us that gets inside of us and makes a difference in our lives. The prophetic signs, the mysteries in this book are to focus us on Jesus. And it really is all about Him. And as we see Him, as we see His heart for us, for the church, for those who believe in Him, and as we see our ultimate victory in Him, it's going to challenge us. And it's going to change us and it's going to encourage us as well. The rest stop info in your outline this morning says this, if you take a look at it. It says, God loves His church more than we can possibly imagine. He loves the church, capital C, the church at large, all those who call Him Lord. He loves us more than we can possibly imagine. We are His bride and the object of His greatest passion. Because of whom the church belongs to, Jesus, we would be wise to bless and not curse the bride of Christ. You know, too often I hear people rag on the church of Jesus. And I don't just mean East Point, though that happens from time to time. I mean they rag on the church at large. In bitter and harsh complaint, they criticize the Bride of Christ. And from some, I guess, from some imaginary position of having it all together or having it all figured out, they cast stones at others and they don't understand that in doing so they're really damaging the body of Christ. Typically, as you read through Revelation 2 and 3, and I hope uh, you've been reading through the book of Revelation as I have, and that's your little homework assignment each week, is just to kind of take some time to read through it. But as you read through these two chapters, it's easy to focus on what the seven churches here that are referred to in chapters 2 and 3, what they did wrong. And next week we will consider some of the sins of the church and what Jesus wants us to do about those. But I'm going to ask my wife to come up and we're going to read this rather lengthy passage today from Revelation 2 and 3. And here's what I want you to listen for as we read this together. If you've got your Bible, you follow along. We'll be reading from the NIV version. But listen for this. Why does Jesus care about the church? Why does He care about the condition of the church? Revelation 2, 2 chapter 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen? Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put, will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will... Come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 7 of chapter 3. These are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. 
I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that your word is life to us and that the promise from the book of Revelation is that uh, just reading it, God, will bless us and will speak and change us, speak to our hearts and change us from the inside out. So today, it really is my prayer that you'd help us understand why you wrote these things to those churches and why they apply to us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give it up for my wife. Thank you, honey. Figured it'd be easier to listen to about seven minutes of reading if uh, I had heard you, because she's a much better reader than I am. Well, I ask you to consider the why question as we went through this together. Why does Jesus care about the condition of the church? And again, my goal is for us to take a look at the so what's, the application part of this as we walk through it. Why is he addressing some issues here with these seven churches? And the answer is found in verse 19 of chapter 3. Look at it. Jesus said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Why did Jesus write these things to these seven churches? Why did he take the time? If you've got a Bible that's a red letter edition, that whole part is all in red letters. Because it's Jesus speaking to the church. Why? Because he loves us. The entire passage is written from a heart of love. In fact, in verse 20, we see a picture of Jesus longing to be with his bride. Look at verse 20 again of chapter 3. It says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. And he with me. You know, this passage, this verse is often used uh, to share the gospel, to share the good news with people. And we tell those who don't know Christ yet, hey, Jesus is knocking at your heart's door. And it's used to witness to the lost. But I want you to understand, and that's, that's an okay application, but the truth is, this was written to whom? To the church. Jesus is saying to the church, I want into your life. 
I want to be with you. The whole idea, meals in that culture were very intimate. They were, they were very engaging. You didn't sit down and kind of wolf it down and get up and go watch TV. You'd spend hours sometimes, you know, reclining and sitting and sharing and talking. There was a whole process involved. Jesus is saying, I want to be in, intimately engaged in your lives. He's correcting and he's warning the churches and us as well because he loves his bride. You've got to understand that. It is not just Jesus with a whip or the stick or beating the churches up. He is speaking into their, their lives and into their hearts because He loves them. And He speaks to us because He loves us as well. So let's consider together what God's relentless love means to us. If God loves the church that much, that way, what does that mean to you and me? Number one, your outline. It means that Jesus knows us and He loves us anyhow. Now I love this about our Lord. That He knows you. He knows me. He knows us. He knows the church and He loves us anyhow. You see, nothing is hidden from Him. Everything is known. Ever worry that people, if they really got to know you, wouldn't like you, wouldn't love you? I have. And I'll admit it. If they really saw me. They really knew the real me. They'd go, oh my goodness, I can't believe He's, you know. And sometimes I know in my relationship with God, I, I worry. Cause how could, you know? But the truth is, nothing's hidden from Him. Nothing is a surprise to Him, and yet He loves me anyhow. Hebrews 4.13 says this, Nothing. And all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. This passage in Hebrews says that He sees it all. He knows it all. To five of the churches, He says, I know your deeds. In chapter 2, verse 9, He says to the church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty. To the church in Pergamum, and in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, I know where you live. And let me just explain that. Pergamos was the uh, capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor there. And it was the center of pagan worship. It was where all the temples were. In fact, they, they began to, to worship Caesar and had a temple for the Roman you know, emperor there as well. And so he says, I know where you live. I know that you're the place where Satan dwells, where those pagan you know, temples dwell. Jesus, though, in each of these, to each of the churches, He says, I know you. I know your deeds. He knows all there is to know about His church. He knows all there is to know about you. And I want you just to let that sink in just for a moment. He knows all there is to know about you. Those thoughts you thought were private, He knows them. Those deeds done in darkness behind closed doors, He's seen them. He knows those attitudes and feelings in your heart toward Him and toward anyone or everyone else. He knows all and He sees all. Nothing is hidden from Him. And I, I wonder if we really get this. I wonder how often we forget that He knows and sees it all. And how it would change the way you and I live if we really believed this, if we really understood it. In fact, it must have been fairly disturbing to the people in these seven churches when they realized that their sin was not some isolated an unknown problem, but something that affected and bothered Jesus a great deal. I was talking with a guy several years, years ago at a conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, he confessed to me, just in conversation, that he'd once had a terrible problem with uh, pornography. And tragically, this is a far too common issue in our society today, in our culture. And it's destroying marriages, finances, families, lives. Uh, it, it's destructive. And he was sharing with me that, that uh, when he first got involved in pornography, he just saw it as kind of a, a victimless sin. It wasn't affecting or hurting anybody else. didn't see it as any big deal. But even after it began to take its toll on his life, on his family, on his finances, on his own life, 
he still wouldn't quit. He said, I wouldn't give it up because I, I still felt like the pleasure outweighed the cost. That's a scary place to be. When you refuse to let go or to turn from something because you think, well, the pleasure outweighs the cost. I'm going to keep doing it anyhow. So I asked him. I said, well, what happened? I mean, he, now he's telling me from a position of, you know, I, I got past this. I, I got some victory in my life over this. What happened? And he told me about some spiritual bondage that God dealt with and how the Lord gave him an accountability partner and how some things that, that came into his relationships that helped him uh, work through this. But I will never forget what he told me with tears in his eyes. He said, Kurt, the first step toward my freedom was when I realized how my sin broke the heart of Jesus. And boy, when he said that, I said, it just hit me. He said, the first step. You know, there are a lot of other things that needed to happen. But he said, the first step towards my freedom, towards wholeness, towards getting healed in this area of my life, was when I realized how my sin broke the heart of Jesus. When it hit him that Jesus knew and that Jesus was brokenhearted over his failure, he responded. He responded to the relentless love of God. You see, Jesus knew him and still loved him. And that love changed him. My wife knows me pretty well. Been married over 30 years. Trust me, she knows me. Sometimes it's scary because <laughs> she knows me better than I know myself, I think. She knows what I'm thinking, what I'm, you know, she knows me. My kids know me pretty well. My friends know me well. But no one knows me better. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's all whistle it together. No one knows me better than Jesus. And here's something even more amazing. And I really want this just to hit you guys today. I want you to let this sink in. No one knows you better. And no one loves you more. No one knows you better. And no one loves you more. No one knows me better. All the friends and family members and people in my life. No one knows me better than Jesus does. And absolutely no one loves me more than He does either. Knowing all there is to know about my past, my present, and this will blow your mind if you think about it, even my future. Isn't that amazing? He not only knows what I've done and where I'm at, but He knows what I'm going to do. <laughs> he, he knows. And yet, the Bible says He loves me with this relentless love. Psalm 103, verses 8-14 to 14 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding. Great word. Abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, thank you Jesus, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His what? His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him, those who revere Him. For He knows. Look at verse 14. For He knows how we are formed. He knows. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He knows. He remembers. And praise God, He's compassionate and abounding in His love. Okay, so what does this mean? Right down to the nitty-gritty where we live. What does this mean for you and me? Well, first, know that He knows and yet rest in His love. I want you today to walk out of here with this deeper awareness that He knows. He knows everything there is to know about you. And yet, rest in that love of God. I've said this before. I'll say it a lot more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make Him love you less. That's the truth. There's nothing 
you can do to make God love you more. If I just do all the right things, maybe I'll get more of God's love. Uh Uh-uh. Or if I I can just avoid, uh uh-uh. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And nothing you can do to make Him love you less. That's grace. That's His mercy. That's His compassion. That's His relentless love. His unrelenting and persistent love. And the reason I like to just pound on this is because knowing this is going to change you from the inside out. When you really get how much God loves you, how much He knows you, from the inside out better than anybody in it, how much He loves you, it's going to change you. It's going to change everything in your life. The second thing this means for us is that as He has loved His church, we must therefore love it as well. We talk about this relentless love of God for the church. If we're to do what He does and be like He is, as He has loved His church, we must love it as well. With all its warts and wrinkles, blemishes and blunderings, we must love what He loves. And He loves His bride. He loves the church. I ache. And I, not from a position of like, you know, again, like I'm smarter than these guys, but I just, I think I've understood something about this that some of us haven't got yet. I ache when I hear leaders, when I hear pastors, when I hear people on the television or on radio, or when I hear others, just the members of the body of Christ, I ache when I hear them speak badly of the church. I ache when I hear them cast stones and criticize Especially when it's always, almost always from the self-ordained position of superiority. Hardly ever do I hear them say, we are weak or we are in sin. It's usually with a pointed finger and a raised voice that they cast stones at those they think they are better than. And I hear it too often. I hear it too often in the body of Christ and it breaks my heart and I'm sure it breaks the heart of God. Because who are we slamming? We're slamming the bride. You can say anything you want about me, but you talk bad about my wife, we're going to have, we're going to have words. <laughs> you know, you can point things at me, I guess, and I'll, I'll be patient and kind, but you talk bad about my wife, you know, I might lose my salvation for just a moment. Come on. This past week I was in Southern California, went down for a, my nephew, did his wedding. And the only part about California I like anymore is In-N-Out Burger. It's a hamburger place. We landed at 10 o'clock. By 11.30, I was at In-N-Out. Ate there three times and uh, had no regrets. I wish I, I, I would eat there every day, except my wife doesn't really want me to. <clears throat> but we, uh, we were there last week. On, uh, we did the wedding on Saturday and we're there on Sunday. And so I, I'd heard about, in fact, I'd heard this guy speak. His name's Francis Chan. And I wanted to go to his church. It's in Simi Valley, which wasn't far from where we were staying at uh, some, some friend's house. And, and I, so we said... <clears throat> Hey, we'd like to go to this church. Uh, would you guys like to go with us? And their pastor at the church that they normally go to was out of town. And I know you never leave when I'm out of town. But they were out of town and, and, and the, I think out of curiosity because they'd heard about this church as well. They said, yeah, sure, we'll go with you. And we walked into a church that in some ways was a lot like ours. It was in a light industrial complex, was, uh, you know, large room, flat floor, kind of, you know, uh, casual, very casual, California casual uh, you know, I, I really, I, I liked it. I walked in and thought, boy, I, this is a nice environment. And sat down and, and worship was similar to ours. And, and the teaching was good. And, and, and I'm sitting, but I could tell these friends of ours are sitting next to us. And I'm perceptive in my good peripheral vision. I could tell they are not enjoying this at all. Now, they come from a very, and I cannot emphasize the word very enough, from a very traditional, formal church. 
And there is nothing, listen to me very carefully here, because I don't want to do just what I'm saying breaks my heart and God's heart. I'm not saying their church is wacky, wrong, or off, you know. There's a place, a, a big place for formal, traditional churches. That's great. And so I don't have any problem that their church is that way, and that's what they like and what works for them. But I could tell, sitting there, they did not like what they were experiencing, and I was just waiting. I was just waiting. Well, later that night, we were sitting in the jacuzzi. I know, it's a wonderful picture, huh? And sitting in the jacuzzi, and uh, I knew, you know, that something was up there. They were just waiting for the moment, and they asked me, what did you think of church this morning? Now, they really didn't care what I thought of church this what they wanted to tell me was what they thought of church. You ever done that before? You know, ask a question just so you can tell somebody. And so I, yeah, so the, I gave a little statement, you know, blah, 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 and they went off. Man, I mean, they just blasted just about everything about this church. Now, in my younger days, I would have gone nose to nose and, and argued. You know, I would, have had, I would have had fun doing that. But I'm mellowing a bit, and I've learned probably through, uh, you know, the hard, the hard way. That it doesn't usually do real, you know, a lot of good just to argue with people. And so all I said after they finished, and this is all I said, I just looked at them and said, isn't it amazing the variety in the body of Christ? And they just looked at me a little disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Huh? I and mean, what do you say to that? You know, I'm just, all I, could, I just said, isn't it amazing the variety in the body of Christ? And I believe that. Here are a few truths for you you can hold on to. These are not in your outline. These are free. A um, couple things, few things that I want you to remember. First, there's no such thing as a perfect church. If you're taking notes, write that down. There is no such thing as a perfect church. If you think it's perfect, don't join it. Because the minute you do, it won't be perfect anymore. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Every church has still got its issues and its stuff and, and its, its uh, challenges. Second truth is, God is a God of variety. Look around. I don't just mean the room here, but look around our county. God is a God of variety. And I think He's just fine with that. With the, the, that there's more than one flavor of church. I think God's a Baskin-Robbins kind of God. You know, and I'm a Baskin-Robbins kind of guy. You know, and I think that's the way God looks at the church. It's okay. Now, yes, some of them have started out of dissension and divisiveness. And, and they split and they had horrible beginnings. And that's true of denominations and churches. That's not something I think He's proud about. But the fact that there's a lot of different churches is okay with God because, listen, there's a lot of different people. And God's not willing that any should perish. He wants to reach them all. So God's a God of variety. That's the second truth. The third one is this. I think it's arrogant and foolish of us to think that we've got it all figured out. I have on my desk, in my office... No less than about ten books sitting there on the book of Revelation. Commentaries on the book of Revelation. I've got five or six others sitting in my library. And the amazing thing about it, if you begin to study and read about, you know, the different views, is that there's a lot of different views on the book of Revelation. I mean, there's a pre-terrorist and the historist and all. I'm not going to get all, into all of it, but they all these different views and, and beliefs and, and attitudes. And, and guys, a lot smarter than me are on both ends of the spectrum about a lot of different issues. And so what do you do? Do you get arrogant and cocky and think, you know, I'm right, everybody else is wrong? I think not. I think what you do is you say, well, as best as I understand it, as best as I'm able to comprehend it from my view and from what God's done in me and what He's shown me and, and the view of life and the view of His kingdom He's given to me, I understand this. 
and we hold loosely to some of the things that are debatable. Now, let me be very clear about this. There's no debate. Jesus is Lord. There's no debate that, he, you know, that the church belongs to Him. And there's no debate that, you know, salvation, that there's one way to, to relationship with God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So I'm not talking about the major doctrines, the foundational truths of the church, which are by and large agreed by all, by and large agreed by all who call Jesus Lord. But there's a whole lot of other stuff. If you've been around, you know what I'm talking about. And I just think it's arrogant. For anyone, including me, to say, oh, I've got it all figured out. Here's what I suspect is going to happen. You ready? We're going to get to heaven, and we're going to look around, and we're going to go, I had no idea God was going to let that man. He's a Baptist. He's a Calvinist. I, you know, we're going to, we're going to, I'm sure that we're going to be very, very surprised at, for just at least, at least a moment, and then we won't care anymore, at, at the fact that we didn't have it all figured out. And that God said, you know what? I love variety. I love the variety of my church. The point to this is simple. Be careful what you think and say about the bride of Christ. Be careful. If you want a scripture and verse for this, take a look at Philippians 2.3. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. In humility consider others better than yourselves. The others there includes others. Profound, huh? It includes the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Methodists. It includes anybody and everybody who calls Jesus Lord. I love the church of Jesus. And I love it because He loves it. And I'm going to be very careful. And I want to encourage you to be very careful in your attitude towards all of those who lift up the name of Jesus. All right, let's move on. Here's the second thing which we need to understand about God's relentless love for us. Number two. Jesus is committed to our growth and maturity because of love. He is committed, absolutely committed to your growth, to your spiritual growth, and to your maturity because He loves you. We'll take a closer look at what this means for us next week. But make no mistake about it. His love results in His discipline. His love results in His correction in our life. Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes those He accepts as His children. Verse 10, God's discipline is always right and good for us, because it means we will share in His holiness. You see, discipline is not the result of His wrath, and, and people get confused about this. Christians get confused about this. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. As believers in Him, we've been washed clean, we're under the blood. I mean, all the phrases, all the terms, they're, they're all true. And so we no longer have to fear the wrath of God. But He still disciplines us because of His love. He loves you and me so much that He is committed to our spiritual growth and well-being. And His correction is good for you. I know we don't like it. I don't like it. But His correction is good for us because when it is done, when it is done in and out of His love for us, the fruit is holiness. The fruit is I become more like Jesus. The fruit is you become more like Him. My oldest daughter, Jessica, who's on staff here and uh, works in Adventureland, has always been bright and gifted and um, a strong person. I'll just say it that way. Which is a nice way of saying when she was little, especially she was too smart for her britches. And uh, very early on, as her parents, Laura and I saw the great potential that she had. 
But let me tell you, if we let her rule the roost, if we had ignored her need for discipline, thinking that that was the way of love, one of us would be dead today. (laughs) And she would have become my worst nightmare. But instead, because we love her, we disciplined her. We consistently disciplined her in love. And it would have been a lot easier not to. It would have been a lot easier not to. But we did because we love her. And today, if you know Jessica, you know that she's a godly and a mature spiritual woman who loves the Lord. See, that's what God does for you and me. He sees our potential. He sees what you can become. He sees a picture of you that's bigger and better than you have even imagined. And because He sees that, because He sees that potential, and because He loves us, He stays on us like a cowboy riding a wild bronco. I mean, He just stays on us for our good. Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, you've worked hard, but you've forsaken your first love. He tells the church in Pergamum, you've been faithful and true, but you've tolerated heresies and have led yourselves into idolatry and immorality. He says to the church in Thyatira, you're growing in faith and love, but you've allowed moral compromise as well. He tells the church in Sardis that they have a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. And with a broken heart, he tells the church in Ephesus, excuse me, in Laodicea, that they've become lukewarm, and that, they, that they, they, they weren't hot or cold. And he says, I wish you were either one. His great love for the church brings unmistakable and clear rebuke to them because he wants them to know and experience all that he has for them. He will bring, listen to me, he will bring discipline into your life. He will correct you and adjust you and mold and carve and shape you because He sees what you can become and He loves you. Now here's the truth. God loves us just the way we are. And so much so that He doesn't leave us that way. Isn't that good? Isn't that great of God? That He does. There's no question. He loves you just as you are. And so much so that He will not leave us that way. And our ultimate hope is in the truth that God is able. I want to leave you with this today. Our ultimate hope is that God is able to change us from the inside out, to create us into the image of His Son. That He wants to do more than we can even imagine. That He's committed to that process. He's willing and able to change us into His image. I want to read you just as I finish here a few passages that show us the ability that God has and His desire to work in our lives. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8 says, God is able. Look, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Isn't that a great verse? It says God's going to get you there. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to Him who's able. Who's the Him there? It's God. Now to God who's able to do immeasurably more. That means you can't even put your mind around it. You can't even get your hands around what God wants to do. To do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to whose power? His power. That is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then in Philippians 1, 3-6, Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, 
being confident of this. Look at this confidence he has. And it's not a confidence in how smart they are, how together they are, how much they are able to do. He says, being confident of this, that He, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's going to get it done. He's going to finish what He started in you. He's going to bring you to that place of maturity and wholeness and growth so where you live like and act like and think like His Son. The fact that God's going to get us there, that He is able, is another reason why we need to bless the church and not curse it. I want to say, look at what God is doing rather than, boy, what a mess that group is or what a mess that guy is. I want to focus on the old cliche, the glass half full rather than glass half empty. I want to say, look at what God is doing. Look at what He is doing in the midst of, of this church, in the midst of these people. Because He's able and He's committed. It's also another reason why we don't need to be judgmental or harsh with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you know what? Here's a little insight for you. It's not up to me. It's not my words or my judgment or my harshness is going to get them to where they need to be anyhow. God's committed. He'll get them there. And so I can bless them. God's love for His church is relentless. Walk away with that today. His love for you. His love for us. His love for the church in Spokane Valley. His love for the church in the county of Spokane. His love for the church worldwide is relentless. His passion for you and for me and for everyone, everyone who believes in Him, is greater than we can even comprehend. And so I want us to love the church the way He does. With all its imperfections and in all its variety. I want us to love the church the way Jesus does. To be careful the way we speak about East Point. The way we speak about the church at large. To bless and not curse. I want us to love the church with the relentless love that God has for us. I'm going to have the band come out. And I want to pray for you. But... This week, let me just tell you something. Some of you are aware of this. Uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, we'll be hosting uh, a leadership summit, and over 500 leaders and pastors from the Inland Northwest will be here. We're hosting it here in our building. And uh, I'm very excited about this. It's one of the conferences I've been to five or six years in a row now. And it's a satellite conference. They put a big screen up here and project from Chicago, from Willow Creek. Um, and it's just phenomenal time. Great time. But you know what I'm excited about? I'm excited about the fact that there's going to be 500 or so people in this room from all over, from lots of different churches. And it's my prayer that if you rub elbows with them, I know many of you are volunteering and helping and serving, that if they introduce themselves as, Hi, I'm, you know, Pastor So-and-so. I'm Pastor of the Methodist Church in, you know, Genie. Hi, I'm, I'm So-and-so, and I'm, I'm Seventh-day Adventist. Oh, What? I pray that if you run into people this week, here, where you work, where you live, that they'll sense something in you, the love of God. That they'll realize that there's something about you that is embracing and accepting because God's embraced and accepted you. Let's stand together. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I ask you to uh, reach into the hearts of every one of us today. And somehow, Lord, would you show us a, a, a deeper, a, a better view, a broader, wider view 
of the love that you have for your church. And God, where we've been critical, harsh, judgmental, Lord, some perhaps in this room have been critical, harsh, and judgmental towards the church they came from before they came to East Point. Where we've looked at others, where we've bought into a, a view that is condescending and judgmental. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to a place today where we repent of that. Where we confess that to you. Where we come to you and say, Lord, that's, I, I want to speak about the church the way you do. I want to bless the church of Jesus. In all its imperfections and all its variety, I want to speak well of the bride of Christ. And that doesn't ignore the imperfections. It doesn't ignore the things that need to change. But Lord, it puts our hope, our confidence in You. That You are God who is able, bigger than we can even imagine. And that You are more committed to bringing Your church to that place of wholeness and health than we could ever be. And that we can trust You with Your church. And so, Lord, give us a heart of love for the community of faith, for the body of Christ. And where we haven't been, where we've been other than that, Lord, even now, just turn our hearts to You. And change us, I pray in Jesus' name.